up till one or two in the morning playing video games and doing other type of things with me and my friends and the groom. I remember we were driving back to his house at two in the morning where we were staying. And the next day I knew we had to go to the church and set up the church for the wedding. So I said, hey, what time are we supposed to set up the church? He said, oh, we're going to leave at 6 a.m., which I realized was only about three or four hours of sleep that night. I think I might have slept an hour, honestly. And when we woke up, you know, God was so good. It was pouring down rain on us. So that woke me up as we were getting stuff out to the car. And it was rain like I have never seen it before. I mean, I could not see the car in front of me. I had a friend with me who was also in the wedding in my car. And I mean, we were just for an hour on the interstate in Iowa where there's obviously nothing, you know. And you were just trying to see the bumper of the guy in front of you. And I can remember thinking, this is never going to end. Like, we are never going to get to this church because the rain, I'm not kidding you, for an hour did not let up. And we finally got there. I've never been so happy. I didn't care what they wanted us to do with Decorate. I've never been so happy to get somewhere in my entire life. We were soaked in rain. And you think about that, and we've been wedding planning, obviously. You do all this work and stress and preparation so that the wedding goes off well, without a hitch, right? You're trying to get to the end. And he had a great wedding. It didn't rain the day that he was actually married on. We finally reached the end. As we go through the book of Acts, we see the church as Christ is building his church in Acts, even though he's ascended to heaven, Christ is still very much at work in the book of Acts, building his church through the apostles, through the disciples, and the local churches that have been planted But as we've seen in Acts, sometimes there are difficulties that spring into the life of the church, things that are unexpected. And what the pattern we've seen is that sometimes they come from outside of the church, persecution, Jews that are upset, even just various physical challenges. And we'll see that somewhat later. But then there's also challenges from within the church as well. Fighting, you remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about the money that they had received, how much they had given, because they were greedy and because they wanted to take credit for themselves. So we get to this passage in Acts, the end of Acts 15 and the beginning of Acts 16, we're beginning to go into Paul's second missionary journey. He's getting ready to go strengthen the churches in Galatia that he's already visited, and he's going to go plant new churches in what would be Macedonia, even though he doesn't realize that yet. But yet we see Paul face challenges. You know, one of the things that can encourage us as a church this morning is that as we face challenges in our church, in the wider church culture of America, even as Christians, some of these things seem new, but a lot of them aren't. We're going to see today Paul faced a personal disagreement, conflict with another brother in Christ over what they should do. I don't know about you, but I've definitely faced disagreement with other Christians before on what the right thing to do actually is. We face many challenges. Sometimes we will face persecution, even though persecution in America isn't necessarily what they faced or what other Christians face around the world. We'll still feel opposition to the gospel at different points. Sometimes we see whole churches split. Sometimes we see conflicts between denominations and between other believers, and they threaten to cripple and destroy different ministries. So how do you react when God brings challenges and conflict into your life? Oftentimes, some people will run and hide from that conflict, and they'll just avoid it altogether. 
and other people want to meet those challenges head on. And what do we do when issues like this threaten to hinder the work of the gospel? Well, my encouragement, what I think we see in this passage, is that we should trust the sovereignty of God. None of these things take God by surprise. Even though we've been in situations, we can all say, We've been in a situation where you say, I didn't see that coming, you know, that was a total shock. I have no idea what to do, but it's not like God wasn't paying attention. It's not like it took God by surprise. God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows all things. He's working through all things. The Bible says for his good. So if you're facing today brokenness, despair, frustration, anxiety, worry, concern, over what God is doing in our church and other churches and even in your Christian life. What I want us to see this morning is this idea, this sermon idea. And that is that God always accomplishes his perfect plan. Sometimes I'm one of those people where you can ask Alicia this. I don't know how it's going to get done, but I just know it's going to get done. And sometimes she's like, well, we got to think through the details of how this is going to get done. Because it's not just going to work out well at the end. But God always accomplishes his perfect plan sometimes not in ways that we think he will sometimes we say hey i would have done that different but guess what you and i aren't god all right god always accomplishes his perfect plan let's see that this morning in three distinct ways first of all at the end of acts 15 we're going to first see that god accomplishes his plan despite human disagreements god accomplishes his plan despite human disagreements. Look with me at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Remember where Paul and Barnabas have been. They went on their first missionary journey to Galatia, to from Antioch to Galatia, to some of these cities that were pretty close to them, somewhat in range. Cities like Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and they faced some challenges. They faced some opposition to the gospel. In fact, in Lystra, they met some Gentiles who thought they were Greek gods and tried to worship them. But then when they found out they weren't Greek gods, they tried to stone them to death. So some things we hopefully don't face today as we're trying to share the gospel with people. So as you can see there, now what they're wanting to do is go back into Galatia. And you can see this on the maps that we've been handing out. There's more maps out in the four-year area, if you want to get a closer look at it for yourself, they want to go back into these churches and strengthen them. And we see this is why the second missionary journey began. Now, it wasn't just about going back to these churches, but it did entail that. And so Paul has this idea. I think he's led by God even to do this. But there becomes a problem. Look at the next verse. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. You immediately ask, who is John that is called Mark? Well, John Mark was a person that we met back in Acts 12. His mother, I actually believe, is the person who owned the upper room. It's where Jesus had the Last Supper. It's also where um, the Pentecost and other events in the local church happened. His mother was a very wealthy woman. They met in that upper room. We meet John Mark in Acts 12. And he went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He was a young man, and he met their physical needs by helping them out, and I think was learning how to share the gospel from them as well. But there's a problem. At the end of Acts 13, at the beginning of Acts 14, John Mark, for whatever reason, goes away. He departs from them. 
and we're not told why. I gave you a couple of different ideas that maybe I have as to why he went away. Some think he might have been jealous of Paul and his fame and notoriety and how he was becoming the leader of this mission. Some think he was just homesick and he wanted to go back home or he faced some different physical challenges. Some see this even as a crisis of the faith. But for whatever reason, John Mark left, but now he wants to come back. And the issue is all the more clouded because John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. He was related to Barnabas. And this is so much like Barnabas, as we've seen. He's one of my favorite characters in Acts. He's such an encourager. In fact, he's called the son of encouragement. And he just sees the potential in John Mark and knows that John Mark wants to change. And so he says, hey, I want to take John Mark with us on the second missionary journey. But Paul doesn't think that's a good idea. Look at verse 38. It says, Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, gone, and had not gone with them to the work. Now, the biggest question we're going to answer here in a little bit is who is right, Paul or Barnabas? And I think in one sense they were both right. I think in another sense they were both wrong. And we'll get to that in a moment. I do want to point out, though, that I actually think that Luke thinks that Paul was right. Luke, who's the person who wrote Acts, thinks Paul is right. And here's one of the reasons why. Luke mentions that John Mark left them, and that word that he uses for left them in Pamphylia, it almost has the idea of apostating yourself, like you're leaving the faith. We're going to see a couple other things that Luke includes for us that makes me think, at least, that he thinks Paul is right. But like I said, I think they both did things that were right and both did things that were wrong. For whatever reason, Paul considers, he thinks on this, and he says, I don't think it's wise for us to bring John Mark with us. And notice what it says in verse 39. It says, there arose a sharp disagreement. This is a very pointed, intense argument. Some even think it had a physical element to it, where they almost got to the point where they were physically fighting one another over this disagreement. This is why I would say they both had maybe good reasons for why they wanted to go their certain way. But both of them, I think, were wrong in this sense. That they let this dispute escalate to the point where it was a sharp physical disagreement. I don't think that's how God calls us to handle these issues. So they have this sharp disagreement, and it says, so that they separated from each other. I don't know if they had to be separated, but they decided, hey, we just need to go our own ways. And so notice what happens. It says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. I want to just mention this right here, that I honestly think that was the best thing for John Mark to do. Cyprus was where Barnabas grew up. He was a man of the island of Cyprus. And if John Mark was somehow related to Barnabas, he could have been from that area too, even though his mother lived in Jerusalem. But, Paul, or, but Barnabas chooses John Mark and they go to Cyprus. And eventually, that's not all we see from John Mark. He is used by the Lord again. How do I know that? You know the Gospel of Mark? That was written by John Mark. He followed Peter and he got some inside information from Peter and was able to write the Gospel of Mark. So he's used by God to write scripture. Then Peter mentions John Mark and how he's a faithful companion later in the book of 1 Peter. And even Paul, at the end of 2 Timothy, comes back around and he says, Hey, everybody else has abandoned me, but send John Mark to me because he's still profitable for the ministry. So Paul and John Mark make up at some point, and I think Paul and Barnabas make up as well, but yet 
they separate. This disagreement separates them and they go their own way. Notice where Paul goes. He says, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Silas was the man that we met at the end of last week's sermon in Acts 15. He was from Jerusalem. He was thought of well by the people there. And I think he was chosen by Paul for a couple reasons. Number one, he was from the Jerusalem church. And that's going to become important as we talk about circumcision. Remember how they're having to explain this issue of circumcision? Silas could say, hey, this is what the church in Jerusalem decided to do. But he also had Roman citizenship, which also I think is important later on. Now notice again, like I said, I think Luke leans towards the fact that Paul was right. And here is why. Notice the end of verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He doesn't say that about Barnabas and John Mark. And again, I don't think they were doing necessarily the wrong thing or a bad thing. But for some reason, the church in Antioch commends Paul and Silas to their ministry. So for whatever reason, I think they both were right in areas. I think they both were wrong in areas. And even as I was reading this and studying this, have you ever been in the middle of an argument between two friends and you can see they're both right and they're both wrong in some ways? And sometimes, and you wouldn't say this to their face, sometimes you think you're actually more like the other person than you really think they are, you are, right? It's kind of how I feel even as I read through this. But notice God still works. It says for, in verse 41, And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So we look at this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. None of us like to be caught in the middle of something like this, but what we see is God still uses this argument to facilitate the work of the gospel. Isn't it good to know that even when we have arguments that are just terrible and when we make mistakes and we're stubborn, that God can still work through our stubbornness to advance his gospel. Do you believe that this morning? Sometimes it's hard. We all have probably been in churches or been around churches that have splits, arguments, confrontations, and you wonder, okay, who is right, who is wrong? But the beauty of that is even in brokenness, even when people have sinned or been sinned against, God still isn't done working through his church. Thankful for the unity we have in Christ here at our church that to my knowledge we don't at this point have any of those types of disputes here one of the things we can take from this is we pray that God would continue to give us that unity because this was a hard thing that Paul and Barnabas had to work through they spent several years together in fact if you remember back to Acts 9 no one in Jerusalem wanted to talk to Paul they said yeah the guy that killed Christians no thanks I don't want to have anything to do with him but Barnabas came into Paul's life Barnabas took Paul and mentored him in the Lord and took him to the church and said, I do believe you've been saved. So this was a difficult disagreement between them. But friends, the beauty of this is that God still works through conflict. We know that conflict happens from James chapter 4 verse 1. He says, what causes these wars and fightings in your heart? It's because you have desires that aren't pleasing to God. These conflicts, these issues, they come from our heart. We know that God is greater than our heart. So as we think about this, first of all, 
Are you a person that brings up conflict, that stirs up conflict, or are you a person that seeks peace, that wants to make peace with others? Is there a person maybe you need to today, your family and your friends, another believer, that you have something between that you need to make right? And then even as you see others handle conflict and disputes and you think, man, how can God work through this? Do you trust that God always accomplishes his plan? There have been many times that I've seen God work despite my weakness. And I think we even see that here at the end of Acts 15. Look at our second point, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And what I want us to see is that God accomplishes his plan through submissive servants. Through submissive servants. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. So these are two cities that Paul had been to before. And it says, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, if you've read the New Testament and you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Timothy is an important person. There's two books in the New Testament called First and Second Timothy. He becomes Paul's protege, the person that Paul pours into. And this is something that I love about Paul and his ministry. John Mark was a young man that I think Paul was trying to pour into. Timothy is another young man that Paul wants to pour into. I think he always wanted someone that was younger than him that he could help encourage and exhort and teach how to serve the Lord in ministry. And I love that about Paul. If you read First and Second Timothy, they're great encouragements. In fact, so many times as I was studying for ministry, did we go back to First and Second Timothy and Titus to have encouragements for how we should be pastors in the local church. So here we meet Timothy, and notice he's in Lystra. His mother was a believer a Jewish believer, but it only says that his father was a Greek. So I'm not sure if he knew the Lord. It doesn't say. It also seems to indicate in this passage and others that his father might be dead. He might not be around anymore. But he comes from this mixed religious background. We read in Second Timothy, not only was his mother Jewish and a Christian, but his grandmother was Jewish and a Christian as well. His mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice. And I love the great heritage of faith that we see from Timothy. Let me just say this as a word of encouragement. So many times we get caught up into how can women serve in the local church? All I'll say is this. There was a great godly mother and grandmother in Timothy's life that encouraged him and mentored him in the faith. He learned a lot from those women. I've been blessed by the women in my life, two of which are here with me this morning. They don't like it when I point them out, but I'm going to anyways. Great godly influences on me and my spiritual life as well. So ladies who are here in the church, you can be that towards your family, towards other women in the church, towards other kids in the church as well. As we look at Timothy and what Luke tells us about him, look at verse 2. It says he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So these two cities that Paul had been to, he'd planted churches there. Timothy is well spoken of by them. They think he's on the right path. And so it says in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He says, I want to take Timothy, and he's going to join our missions team with Paul and Silas. But there's an issue. 
And that is that Timothy has some mixed background. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. So Timothy wasn't circumcised. And so what does Paul do? He says it takes, he takes Timothy and circumcises him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, if you've been following with us in Acts, in Acts 15, as we've been talking about circumcision, this should seem very strange to you. And why is that? Because in Acts 15, they deal with this issue of circumcision. There were Gentiles who weren't circumcised. And Paul and the church in Jerusalem say they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You can be a Gentile and be uncircumcised and still be holy in God's sight. And they are against that act of Gentiles having to be circumcised. And so it's very confusing that we come here and we see Timothy being circumcised by Paul. And some people are even very critical of Paul here. And they say, well, he shouldn't have done that. You know, not based on what just happened. He seems even hypocritical. And let me tell you why I think Paul does this. He did not circumcise Timothy so that Timothy could be saved. He didn't think that circumcision led to salvation. I don't even think he did it because of peer pressure necessarily. I think he did this because Timothy was going to go into Jewish synagogues, Jewish people who needed to hear the gospel. And if he was Jewish himself, his mother was Jewish, right, and not circumcised, it would have been a hindrance to the gospel. And so Paul said, you know what? I don't think you have to be circumcised to be saved. But Timothy, I'm asking you to lay down your rights and take that on so that we can share the gospel with others. And so Paul does that. He does that so that they could go and share the gospel. And look at verse 4. It says, And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. So he just circumcises Timothy, and then he tells all these other Gentiles who are Christians, Hey, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. That's what they decided. You do need to flee from sexual immorality and idolatry. We talked about that in last week's sermon. And notice at verse 5, notice what this does. It says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. There's a lot of talk in America about rights and what rights we have and what we're entitled to as Christians. And I love our country. I love the rights that we have. There are men and women who have fought and died for our country so that we can have those rights. But what I don't like hearing is this, that my rights as an American outweigh my rights as a Christian. We have freedom in Christ, yes. We have freedom as Americans, yes. But what does Christ call us to do with those rights? He calls us to lay them down for others. So many times we get so focused on, I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed to say this. They can't stop me from saying this. And that may be true. But what does Jesus say? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. You have rights as a Christian and as an American, but how can God work in your life to lay those rights down for other people? I heard of an Indian pastor. He came to our college once to speak. He had a missions team from the college coming out to do some kind of an evangelistic service but there were problems with gang violence and with different Hinduism and things like that that were opposing the work. And so to ensure the safety of the missions team, he went to every house in that neighborhood. It was like a couple thousand homes 
by himself and knocked on their door and said, are you okay if we have this evangelist? Invited them to it. Said, are you okay if we have this service here? Now, that's a lot of work. Can't imagine if I had to go to every town, even every house, even in Trafalgar, and invite people to church and say, hey, is it okay if we have church this Sunday? You think, why did that guy do that? Because he wanted the work of the gospel to continue. I'm not saying God will call us to do that, but there are times in our lives where we say, I have the right to say this. I have the right in Christ to do this thing. Sometimes there's things that we know we have the freedom to do in Christ that aren't sinful, but for someone else, we lay down those rights so that we can share the gospel with them. The important question this morning, not is what you have the right to do, but what do you have the right to lay down? What are you willing to do to share the gospel with someone else? As we continue, let's look at this last point. God accomplishes his plan not only through submissive servants and despite human disagreements, but also we see that God accomplishes his plan. You put the last point up for me, Schaefer, by directing his messengers. We're going to see God direct Paul and Silas and Timothy to where they're supposed to go. So notice what it says. And as they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So we see them. They're not only strengthening these churches in Galatia, but they're continuing to go out and preach the gospel. So you can see on that map there, in the first missionary journey, they went by sea to the island of Cyprus, and then they went up into Galatia. Here Paul decides to go over land. And we see that the route that he takes is over those cities in Asia Minor. And you ask, why did they do this? Why didn't they go down into those cities? We see that Paul even wanted to share the gospel with those people, but it says the Holy Spirit would not allow him. Now, I don't know why God didn't want Paul to go there. I have no idea. Maybe he was protecting him from something. Maybe he knew that Paul needed to go somewhere else. But you can see on that map, they don't go down into those cities, at least at that point. Instead, they decide to go to Mycenae, and they share the gospel there. But the Holy Spirit, and I don't know how the Holy Spirit did this. Maybe the Holy Spirit was telling them, even in a vision. We know that those happened during this time. Maybe even there was some persecution that happened as they tried to enter into those cities. And so Paul knew that wasn't where God had called them to go. Yeah, we see this is how God is directing them. Now look at some of those cities that are there. You'll see that there's Ephesus, which Paul will get to later in his second missionary journey. But if you've read the beginning of Revelation, Revelations chapters 1 through 3, you'll see a lot of these same names, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis, all these cities that are mentioned at the beginning of Revelation that are here in Asia Minor. And I'm not saying Paul never got to them, but for some reason the Holy Spirit did not want Paul to go to those cities at that point. So notice it says they went to Mycenae, and it says after that, in verse 7, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So Bithynia was where Constantinople was, or Byzantium, and Nicaea. And so that's even north of Asia, Asia Minor. And God didn't want Paul to go there 
as well. But notice, God had a special plan for where he wanted Paul to go. Keep reading with me. It says in verse 8, So passing Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there and urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now Macedonia, as you can see, it's in the top left-hand corner of the screen. It's actually what we consider very much Eastern Europe today. And over there we see some of the cities that not only Paul visits on his second missionary journey, but if you notice, there are also cities that have books in the New Testament written to them. So Philippi, where Paul will write Philippians to later, Thessalonica, where he'll write First and Second Thessalonians, um, even Corinth later on, where he'll write First and Second Corinthians. So part of God's plan was keeping him from evangelizing to those cities. There was nothing wrong with them, but God had a different plan for Paul in directing him towards Macedonia. Now, how did God do this? It says that he gave Paul a vision in the night, this Macedonian man who went and told Paul <clears throat> to come over to Macedonia and share the gospel with them. And there's a couple of different ideas on who this person was. It was probably just a random Macedonian, and somehow Paul knew based on how he was speaking that he was from Macedonia. Some think that it was Alexander the Great because he was from Macedonia and he was considered like the Greek Macedonian man. But I have one more idea, and I'm not saying this is just what I see in the text. I'm not saying it has to be this person. But there is one more thought that I have as to who this Macedonian man be, and it's found in verse 10. Notice with me. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go with him into Macedonia. Now, wait a second. He changes, and I used to teach English, so I kind of major on this stuff a little bit. He changes how he's writing. Did you see that? He doesn't just say Paul went to Macedonia. He says, we went to Macedonia. Well, who's we? It includes the person that's writing, who is Luke, as we've said. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, who was from Philippi, which was in Macedonia. And I wonder, I just wonder, if it wasn't Luke who Paul sees in the vision, Luke comes over to Troas after Paul has this vision of the Macedonian man, Paul sees Luke and knows that's where he's supposed to go. Because where does he go after this? He goes to Philippi, where Luke was from. So I just, I just wonder. I'm not saying that's what it has to be. You can disagree with me on that. We don't have to separate like Paul and Barnabas did, all right? But I just wonder if it wasn't Luke who was this Macedonian man. Whatever the case is, this is where we see Luke. And it's really cool what we see here in Acts. Luke goes with Paul on some of these missionary journeys. Luke had a lot of connections. We know that he was connected to the Herod family because of a friend that he had. He writes the gospel of Luke and has connections to Mary and all these other people. It's one of the most historical gospels that we have. Not that the other ones aren't true, but he has so much detail in Luke and Acts. And one of the reasons he knows so much about Paul is because he traveled with Paul here to Philippi. And we'll see him travel with Paul again later. So he goes with them into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God accomplishes his plan by directing messengers. So often I hear about people asking, and people have asked me this, and it's a good question to ask. 
What about these nations and these towns and these people groups and languages who have had no one share the gospel with them? And what I always try to come to at some point is this. It's that I pray for them. I hope God does share the gospel with them. But ultimately, it's God working in the hearts and lives of his messengers to share the gospel with those people. If you think about where the church is in Acts, it was just in Jerusalem. And then it spread out to Judea and Samaria. And then Jesus says it'll go to the ends of the earth. And that's what I think we see Paul doing. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to have a vision in the middle of the night. and You're going to say, hey, God's called me to go to this person because I saw this in a dream. But God is working through missionaries, through Christian workers, to share the gospel with others. But let me also say this. That God is working in your heart to share the gospel with others as well. There's people even here in America that you know, that I don't know, that you have connections with, that I don't have connections with, that you can share the gospel with too. Now, maybe God won't give you a dream of that person that says, hey, come share the gospel with me. But God works through the lives of all of his servants as well. There's nothing special about Paul or Barnabas or Timothy that made them equipped necessarily to share the gospel. But they were called by God and submissive to what he had called them to do. So what does it take for God to do this? How is God building his church and sharing the gospel even with others? It takes those who are submissive to his will. Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go to Bithynia. And he didn't go because he knew that's not where God had called him to be. How many times in our lives do we know, hey, I think God is leading me to share the gospel with this person that he's telling me this is who I need to talk to. This is where I need to be. But for whatever reason, we decide not to do it. So we conclude the message this morning. We're seeing what is somewhat of a transitional chapter, but I hope you can see the sovereignty of God, that God is accomplishing his plan through some different difficulties that Paul faces. So as we close, I want to look at how does God's control meet my heart? Because ultimately what we see is that for you to be used by God, for you to trust God, he has to be on the throne of your heart. So ask yourself these questions with me. First of all, what's on my mind when I have conflict with others? How does my heart respond when I have these different conflicts with them. Sometimes we so often get into these disagreements, these arguments, not because we're defending God, but because we want what we want. Because we have our own heart desires that say, you know what? I want this more than I want to please God. So how does your heart respond? How does your heart respond when you see conflict? Are you drawn to help, to bring peace, to run away, to avoid God's will is not for the church to have disagreement, disunity, but it is for them to agree in the Lord. Paul will say later in Philippians to two women who are fighting in the church, I want you guys to agree in the Lord. So how does your heart respond during conflict? Are you prone to fear? I meet so many Christians who worry about denominations and all these different fightings and conflicts in the church. And you see all these people attacking each other. 
And it's not that we don't take a stand for what we believe in the Bible. You know that I believe that. But I just wonder how much of it is just a waste of time and how God would want us to have unity with each other in Christ. So how does your heart respond when there's conflict? Secondly, in what ways are you tempted to doubt God during times of trouble? When these conflicts and situations pop into your mind, what are your first thoughts about God? Do you trust him? Do you lean on him? Say, you know what? God is in control. He knows more than I do. He is in control of all things. Are you tempted to doubt and to despair? Maybe you can feel this. Sometimes when I worry, I can feel myself spiraling and just thinking about something until I can't get off it anymore. You know what that is? It's a mind that's not set on God and his sovereignty. How do you doubt God during times of trouble? How do you doubt God when the plan changes? Think about Paul. He says, you know what? We're going to go into Asia. And then God says, no, you're not. And he moves him somewhere else. And his plan changes several times. What do you do when God changes your plan? When he opens doors and closes doors? Do you doubt God? You say, hey, my way was better. Well, it actually wasn't. What goes on in your heart when things change? And then lastly, are you submissive to his spirit? We get so concerned about our rights and what we have and how we can hold on to those things. And so often we don't think about how can I serve others and their needs by maybe laying this right down. It's hard for us to do all these things, trusting God, depending on him, making peace with others. These are not easy things to do. We can't do it on ourselves. We need God to work in our hearts and to have us respond as he would want us to. And so may God be praised and may he work in our hearts as we trust in him to accomplish his mission. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts and how we see your church being built. God, this morning we know that we're tempted to despair. There's times in my life, Lord, where I think, how is this going to work out? You are on the throne. You've never changed, not even once. You're working all things together for good. Even in times in our church where we wonder, how is this going to get done? Are you really building your church? We know that it's a promise that you've made to us. So God, help us to respond this morning according to your will and to trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.